I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, the Bible which I need to take with me up front here. Exodus 23. Exodus 23 this morning. We are in the second book of the law, Law of Moses. Maybe you've read in your Bible studies or if you've done a survey in the Bible, the, the Torah, you've heard that word mentioned. Um, most often in reference to the first five books of the Old Testament. So Exodus, the second in the Torah. And uh, when we began our study in Exodus, we said that this is a book about movement. Uh, God's chosen people, the Israelites, literally putting one foot in front of the other and moving out of Egypt and into the wilderness, now moving through the wilderness as God uh, leads them. Um, that pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire at night uh, to give them light. Well, I'm still going to stand by that statement that this is a book of movement, even though the people have not moved physically uh, in the last several chapters since they were, uh, came to Mount Sinai and camped there around the mountain. Um, they're in the terrifying, awesome presence of God on Mount Sinai. He has spoken to them. His holiness just engulfs uh, that mountain. And when the people hear this, they're ready to die. So they turn to Moses, say, Moses, you speak to us what God tells you, or we're, we're doomed. And so they turn to their mediator uh, in Moses. So that's what's happening in these last several chapters as Moses shares with the people some specific uh, instructions from the Lord on how to live as a holy nation. Uh, because their new master is holy. Um, they are to represent him in all of his holiness to each other, to represent his holiness to the nations around them. Uh, so we're nearing the end of this book of the covenant where we've seen case laws as a part of this covenant and the, the precepts that are to govern uh, the worship of the people, their everyday transactions. Um, some of them have been very odd and strange to our ears as we reread them and maybe you've had some discussions in small group or Bible study and how to apply uh, these words, uh, really adhere to these precepts um, in a different time and place uh, in church history. Um, my reading of Calvin's Institutes this last week, uh, I was reminded of the, the purpose of the law, the end of the law, that is something we really need to keep before us. Um, the moral law as well as the ceremonial law the civil laws given to the people, these specific applications of the moral law were all intended to lead them, to lead their hearts, their minds, and their hands in obedience to the Lord and all holiness. And we mentioned last week that holiness is not something that can be legislated. The more legislation, the more law that's placed upon the people in the Old Testament... And now, the, the greater the burden, uh, the more we see uh, our inability to keep the law. If the law saves us, we are absolutely doomed. We understand that. Um, the law's demands actually show us how in need we are. The people... Uh, are not saved here by trying to obey God's law. They're already saved. They've already been delivered. 
So he's given this law for another purpose. The law shows them how to love their master and love those around them. Jesus would summarize it that very way in the New Testament. But here's where I want to bring in Calvin and the, the leading of the law. He says, The law was given, he has in mind all the law here, moral, civil, judicial, not to restrain the folk of the old covenant under itself, but to foster a hope of salvation in Christ until his coming. You hear what he's saying? The laws that we've been reading, the laws that we've been studying under the old covenant were not some alternate way you know, apart from Christ or leading away from Christ. But rather, here's Calvin again, to hold their minds in readiness until his coming. Even to kindle a desire for him and to strengthen their expectation in order that they might not grow faint by too long a delay. The law leads to Christ. Jesus is the end of the law. You can verify that with Paul's words in Romans 10. Closing paragraph of Calvin, he says, If the forms of the law be separated from its end, then one must condemn it as vanity. So I know that's a crazy long introduction before we read, uh, read the text here. But let's keep in mind the end of the law uh, as we finish up the book of the covenant. It must show us our need for Christ. Kindle a desire, uh, expectation for His coming. So Exodus 23, beginning at verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This is the holy and enduring word of our God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask that you would teach us now from your word, that we would see, behold, wondrous things from your law. Lord, search our hearts in these moments. Help us to hear to receive this word that you've spoken to us, that you might teach us what is for our good and what is ultimately for your glory. Lord, make us attentive now, we pray. Speak faithfully through your servant, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So are you God-remembering or God-forgetting? That's a little phrase that I stole from Dr. Paul Tripp this last week in a family devotion. We realize just how little control we have over most of the things in our lives. 
And when you look at pictures of Nebraska and Iowa right now, and the, the rising floodwaters and whole towns just cut off by the waters, say, yeah, we, we can't control that. Uh, a little control that we have. And, and I think things like that are pretty obvious to us when we see the rising floodwaters or we see the path of the storm and you know, where the lightning is going to strike or where the, the rain will fall, those seem fairly obvious. What about the, the little things, the small things in life? Like when you're trying to find your sunglasses and you go from room to room in the house, you turn the house upside down and you go out to the garage, the car, where they should be and they're not. And you go back into the house and one of the kids says, Dad, look, look on top of your head. And there they are. You think, wow, if, if we could lose the little things so quickly, we really need to come face to face with the fact that we're not sovereign over much of anything. We don't have much control. If I can't control where my glasses are, or where I left that book, or you know, why I missed that exit, I missed a lot of exits on Friday with Lydia, uh, how can I expect to have any power or control over the most significant things in my life. I can't. We can't. So when we're faced with our, our own lack of sovereignty, it's going to produce in us either that anxiety and fear or a sense of relief. If we think we have to have control you know, to keep everything around us you know, in balance and in order, in order for us to do the things that we want, then we are going to be a very anxious and burdened people. Anxiety is God-forgetting. Or we can acknowledge that even though we have so little control over most of the things in our lives, our every moment is under the loving and caring control of our God. That, that's what provides relief. That, that's what is God remembering. We can rest under His absolute rule over everything. I, I have a hard time believing that. Maybe you do too. That God will provide. He's more than capable of ruling and keeping things together. We need to be God Remembering, just as the people of Israel in the wilderness on their way to the promised land need to be God remembering. Their deliverer is the one who has provided it for them. He's one who's continually uh, reminding them of this. So how can they be God remembering? This text helps us with that. The Lord reiterates this pattern of work and rest that He has made and modeled for them. Along with some of the annual festivals that encourage them to be God remembering. So that's, we're going to look at this. We're going to see a time for rest, a time to worship, and the expectation that these uh, create. Think of the very concept of a Sabbath, ceasing from work. It is a unique place in the life of God's people, a unique place in the covenant. Sabbath observant was so it was so very important in the life of the people and their their movement towards holiness. So much so that to ignore the Sabbath was equivalent to ignoring God, rejecting the one who has delivered them. We'll see this later in Exodus. This, this, this time of rest was, was for the people. It was also for the land. 
There's this weekly pattern, working and resting on the seventh day that we see in verse 12, and a yearly pattern for the land in verses 10 and 11. So the six years and the six days are really serving, they're functioning in the same way here. Seventh day, seventh year. Leviticus will read about the year of Jubilee, which was seven groups of seven, the 50th year. Okay, the Sabbath principle is established at creation by the Lord who works and rests. It's commanded at the mountain. We even saw in the relationship between masters and, and, and slaves, their employees, there was a, a pattern of seven uh, in the contracts that they make. So whether it's days or years, the Sabbath was to be this time of restoration, refreshment for the people and for the land. Now, if you've spent any time on a farm or you grew up on, on a farm, you know that leaving a land fallow after several years of, of productivity is actually very healthy for the land. It allows it to replenish. It, you know, more of the nitrogen gets worked into the soil and so forth. But in this case, that was not the reason to leave the land unseated. It was not about productivity of the land, but it was about compassion. Allowing the poor, allowing other creatures to glean off the land and what it may produce while it's sitting fallow. So this is God's creation care. It's built right in here uh, to their yearly uh, schedule. We're not exactly sure if all of the land rested in, in the same year. Uh, that, that, that seems more unlikely with the need to feed animals and, and store up uh, so much food. But more, you know, maybe a rotation system? We don't know this for sure. Um, where one land is fallow and another is worked. But the resting of the land was for creation. It was, it was all humanitarian uh, in its purpose. Uh, we could say the same is true for the weekly rest from work. Okay, it may reduce some productivity, but it gives rest to the animals. It gives rest to the employees. Time to refresh. Literally to catch one's breath on the seventh day. from That weekly routine. Trusting the Lord to provide what is needed. When we looked at this command in Exodus 20, we said that this, this weekly rest is an act of faith. It's a weekly reminder to the people that God is their provider. Witness to the world that God is their provider, even when they're not working. That He is faithful. That He can be trusted to know what is we need for human flourishing. So not only to care for ourselves, but for others when we honor this weekly rest. Think of that favorite chicken sandwich of the South. Maybe it's your favorite, maybe it's not. But Chick-fil-A is pretty popular. Um, the founder of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, from the very beginning of this organization said, you know, the, the employees are, are going to have a day to worship, a day to rest. They're not open on Sundays. Um, unless they're making sandwiches you know, as an act of mercy, an emergency. Just a wonderful model, and I hope the leadership uh, keeps it that way. But it's estimated that Chick-fil-A could make another 20% if they were open on, on Sundays. But for Mr. Kathy, and, you know, the prophet wasn't the driver. Honoring the Lord, caring for others was the driver. So that the language we find here it doesn't add anything to the fourth commandment, but the fact that it's repeated is really important. Be very tempting. 
for the Israelites, especially you know most of them, you know, living as farmers, and their livelihood depends on this. Very tempting to ignore a Sabbath rest. People needed to be God remembering, remembering that God was their deliverer, their provider. So this pattern keeps us living in dependence uh, upon the Lord. Um, so you know, let, me, let me encourage you to take a look at your schedules. Uh, how are your days shaping up in the coming week? Uh, your schedule is going to tell you a lot about what is uh, important to you. Uh, and if we do not schedule rest, and we're working endlessly or expecting others to work endlessly, then we're not loving others well. We're not loving the Lord well. We need to rest for our own physical, emotional, spiritual well-being. The Lord commands this. He loves us so much that He commands this. So I'm just kind of unroll this a little bit more. If your spouse is making meals all week long, you know, doing the dishes, the laundry, whatever else is needed, and caring for the home, there should be a time in the week where that's not happening. Where there should be rest from that. If you don't have to go to work on certain days, but you're still thinking about work when you're not at work. Maybe you're off-duty, but I'm thinking of like the off-duty police officer or someone who's on call, and then you know, still working some security or something like that, you know, putting in some extra hours. It's not a true rest. Pastors need to work hard to schedule rest for their own health, health of the family, the church. When we get to the New Testament, it assumes a Sabbath practice. Though it may not be confined to a single day, places like Romans 14, Colossians 2, tell us that the implementation of this rest may look different. But the rest remains. It's the shadow and the substance belongs to Christ. Jesus is the rest for His people. The expectation of the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus. People of Israel are going to find rest from their wilderness journey as they come into the promised land. I mean, here is an, ex- an implicit fulfillment of that promise to Abraham so long ago. That they would possess the land, that they would farm the land of Canaan. They would follow this pattern of work and rest. This is what they are anticipating. And our anticipation now is for that heavenly rest. A heavenly country that we will enter into fully And Christ returns. So every Sabbath rest, every week, is a picture of the rest that we already have, but not yet fully in Jesus. So there's time for rest, time for worship. The seventh day Sabbath cycle is foundational to the worship of the people. When we look at these annual feasts that we find in verses 14 through 19, if you were to lay them out on a weekly calendar, they would all culminate on the Sabbath day. So again, the worship is built in by God. And this worship is corporate. We, we can use elements of, of corporate worship in our prayer and our song as we worship privately, in devotions, but it's never a private matter. I like how Doug Stewart, he makes this point. He says, we pray that the Lord's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So our worship now is preparation. We're practicing for heaven where all God's people will live in endless worship. This yearly cycle of feasts was a corporate worship, giving thanks to God for His deliverance, His provision. I just want to take a look at at these feasts here briefly. Uh, Mention at specific times in the agricultural calendar, times following a harvest, where there would be a natural break for the people from their labors, from that farming routine. I think we can appreciate the kindness of God and simply where these feasts are laid out uh, throughout the year. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, right after that spring planting. It's almost this time of year, in mid-March. Um, the feast remembers the Exodus. Uh, reinforce uh, for the people uh, what had happened uh, at least three months earlier as they left Egypt. It would also fix that time of year in their minds as they get into the promised land and others join the people of Israel who are not as familiar with the Passover. Think of leaven as the symbol for corruption. The people have cast off the corruption of Egypt. Now under the saving hand of the Lord who passed over the homes smeared with the blood of the Lamb. And after the, the grain harvest in late spring, was the Feast of Harvest, also known as the Feast of Weeks. This took place seven weeks, or 50 days, following the Passover. This was after the main wheat harvest. The people would, would bring offerings of regular bread, not unleavened bread, but regular bread uh, to the Lord, uh, celebrating His faithfulness, His provision through another year and its harvest. Uh, we can learn more about these feasts in Leviticus 23. But if 50 days after Passover, if that sounds familiar, it's because it is highlighted in the New Testament. We get to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, the Greek-speaking Jews would refer to this Feast of Weeks as Pentecost. 50th. It was at Pentecost that the church saw and experienced the Lord's provision, the outpouring of His Spirit. And the last one, the Feast of Ingathering, that coincided with the fall harvest, it's also known as the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, Leviticus 16, Leviticus 23. This feast began five days after the Day of Atonement, really considered the end of the farming year for Israel at this time. And this feast remembers the Lord's provision in the wilderness, His ongoing providential care for the people. And in, in this Feasts, there are more sacrifices than, than all the others. All kinds of sacrifices. Burnt offerings, food offerings, drink offerings. Now if you're like me, just keeping all of those straight is difficult in your mind. Not only the names of these feasts, but where they are in the church calendar and what, they, what they're for. So I'll just give you a few phrases here to make these easier to remember. To capture in a simple way. Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover remembers and celebrates God as Redeemer. God is our Redeemer. Uh, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Harvest, remembers God as Provider. God is Redeemer, God is Provider in the Feast of Weeks. And the Feast of Ingathering remembers God's providence, His sustaining grace uh, to His people. And we get to verses 18 and 19 that seem to have these feasts in mind and possible abuses. Um, abuses in, in sacrifices and worship of the people. 
Uh, the people had a clear, pretty clear understanding by this time that when the blood of an animal is gone, uh, that the animal is dead, uh, when that blood has been drained. Um, and some of the surrounding peoples in the ancient world would, would drink the blood of animals in order to you know, sort of prolong their own lives or some way you know, capture uh, the lifeblood of this animal. Um, and they would sometimes mix that blood with bread in order to make it more uh, palatable. There seems to be a guard in place here against that type of practice, against cheating God. You know, it's really hard to cheat God in sacrifice when it's a sacrifice of an animal because there are certain pieces that need to be taken to the sacrifice. It's hard to say, well, that piece isn't there. But when you're offering produce, it's a little easier. It's a little easier to you know, take the stuff that's been left on the shelf past expiration um, rather than the first fruits that God requires. Um, Prophet Malachi gives a chilling charge. But you say, what a weirdness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The people are to honor God with their first fruits. They're to worship Him in, in fear, which is also behind this boiling of a goat kid in its mother's milk. I mean, I know this is strange stuff. We read this three times uh, in the Law of Moses. The fertility practices for the Canaanites, mixing and marrying things that, that create life in order to stimulate power or increase fertility, whether it was crops or animals. That's underneath that bestiality law that we read about in the previous chapter. And so the theory here in verse 19 is that the people may be tempted to do this as part of their sacrificing. The mother's milk gives life to the baby goat, and so cooking it in the milk might give strength and a greater weight to their sacrifice. Or maybe increase the fertility of the flock as a whole. Um, so it's, it's these sort of tales, these, we'll call it superstitious type things, that the Israelites were to stay away from in their worship and their sacrificing. I think there's, there's a side application here worth noting. God's people in the Old Testament, His people today, are not to be a superstitious people. As if we could somehow manipulate God or, or force His hand or, or change the, the forces of nature or spiritual forces that He is Lord over. And we may have special you know, pieces of memorabilia that have been given to us or, or artifacts or things like that that we appreciate. Things that have been passed on. But if we think we can look at something or touch something or hang something from the mirror or around our neck to manipulate or control, then we're denying the power of the living God. All the things that He does. And He does all things so well. So to worship God in purity and holiness, the way that He commands is really the purpose of these annual feasts. We worship today, every day, with gratitude. Gratitude to God for what He has given to us. 
given us all things in Christ. We worship without corruption, casting off the leaven of sin. Like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, before you come to the Lord in worship, before offering your sacrifice, go to your brother, go to your sister, be reconciled before coming to worship. Our worship should not emulate the world around us. What the world values, God tells us how to worship Him and He is most glorified when we worship Him in the way that He tells us. Verse 13 is really the essence of the covenant, summarizing all that goes before, all that comes after. The people's allegiance, their loyalty was to be to Yahweh, to Him alone. And that's the first command again. It begins, it closes the book of the covenant. There's no mistake who the people of Israel are to worship, who we are to worship and adore as God's people. So the feasts show us these set times for worship. But like the, the yearly, weekly Sabbaths, there's an expectation that comes with this worship, with this feasting. The Lord is preparing the people. They're learning to look for the Savior, for the one-time sacrifice for sin. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 5, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We are redeemed in Christ and now cast off our sin. Sanctified in Christ. People rid themselves of the leaven for the feast. At the grain harvest, the feast of weeks, the first fruit is brought in, waved before the people, holding out the promise that there is more to come. We see in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that there is more to come. He's the first fruits of all those who've been made alive. Because He has been raised, we too will be raised. Great harvest of God's people brought to Him. The many sacrifices of the Feast of Booths that in gathering prepares for the coming of Christ. Putting away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. So the law of God, holding their minds in readiness, kindling that desire, Calvin said. And we don't eat these feasts now as part of the ceremonial law that was in Israel. But we do feast together. We feast here at the Lord's table. A meal that Christ has commanded us to eat. Where Christ Himself is present, feeding us. Oh, the, the bounty of God's grace that is here at this table. He provides the bread and the cup. He provides for our daily needs. He provides for our greatest need. Himself. The broken body, the shed blood, is that full atonement for our sin. Which, which, which is what God has promised through these sacrifices of old. So if we want to be God remembering, not God forgetting, we must pursue these times of rest, times of worship, going to this table often together. The name of Jesus Christ, His name alone, would be exalted. It would be in our hearts. It would be on our lips as His people. Let's consider that as we go into this week. Let's pray together.
Lord God, we do thank You for Your Word. You, O Christ, are the bread of life. That You have given Yourself in fulfillment of these sacrifices that You gave to Your people. Guiding, directing, moving their hearts in expectation and readiness. Lord, we thank You for the rest that is ours in the Lord Jesus. And even in these moments as we rest, we long for Your return, O Christ. We will rest and worship with all the saints gathered around Your throne. Singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Lord, continue to move us, sanctify us in holiness on this day and in this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.